0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Jamie Lowe, author of Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of Californians' Wildfires, published this year by MCD. As Lowe, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background okay. and how you came to write this book?
2: Uh, I'm a journalist. I am a frequent contributor to the New York Times Magazine, and I often do radio. I've been on This American Life and Radio Lab in NPR. I mostly focus on stories about people and. A lot of stories about California. I think probably because that's where I was born and raised, though I currently live in Brooklyn.
1: Okay, and how did you get in, interested in writing about this yes. topic? Yes, the second part of the
2: question. Sorry, <laughs> um, I am. Um, so I was at home actually, and I was just reading the newspaper, and it was on. I think it was in the California section of the LA Times, and I was sitting in my mom's dining room, and there was a 500-word story on a woman who had died fighting a fire, and she was incarcerated, and her name was Shauna Lynn Jones. And I was really struck by the article for two reasons. The first reason was that, as I said before, I was born and raised in California, and I shamefully had no idea that there were incarcerated firefighters involved in fighting wildfires, but they make up 30% of ground crews. And I also felt um, like I really wanted to know more about Shauna Lynn Jones. There was about two sentences written about her and basically tied her to her crime and said that she was from Lancaster, California. And that was it. And I wanted to know more about her. So I started sort of looking into and researching the fire camps and also getting to know her family.
1: Okay, and so then can you tell us a bit about the backgrounds of the women that you're writing about, both Shauna and uh, you know, the other women in these fire camps? Sort of who are they? Where are they coming from? How did they end up in the prison system? And then how do they get from there into specifically working in the fire camps?
2: Sure. So I should backtrack and say that my initial research started um, in doing an article that focused pretty much primarily on Shauna Lynn Jones. And I went to the camps and started interviewing the women. And when I decided I really wanted to write a book, I sort of narrowed down the women I wanted to follow to about seven or eight women. And I their backgrounds run the gamut. They, it's a huge spectrum of people in terms of, you know, where they came from, what they had gone through, and what they were incarcerated for. Um, I, I really wanted to kind of start with who they were as people when I met them because, um, I just wanted to kind of get to know them as people and then go into what their backstories were. But many of them. Came from California. Uh, one woman that I followed was from Massachusetts, and she worked for Patagonia, um, and ended up in prison because she had um, uh, somebody died after a drunk driving incident, and there were women who, you know, were had gotten into fights and were convicted of assault, were convicted of drug. Um, related charges. There were sort of a variety of um, people who ended up there and who I ended up talking to, but I don't think any of them necessarily are defined by ne- where they came from or what brought them to prison.
1: Yeah, there is, this seems like a real range. This These women could be anybody, you know, people that look like they had a really promising life ahead of them until you know one thing went wrong and then you have people that sound like they've been struggling with lots of different issues in their life for a long time some of them been kind of in and out of the system um and just kind of a a real range uh there so then how sort of how do they get selected to be the ones that are the firefighters how does that you know, how, how does it happen that this particular set of people ends up on the fire line?
2: Yeah, the, so the technical way it happens is when you you CDCR, which is the California Corrections Department, they say that um, you have to want to go to fire camp. It's a privilege to go to p- fire camp within the programming. Um, and so you have to first apply, you have to pass a psychological evaluation And you have to have a certain amount of time left on your sentence. It has to be under three years. And then you have to not have tried to escape. Um, You have to have nonviolent crimes, have not been convicted of a nonviolent crime. Or no, wait, that doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. Um, You can't have been convicted of a violent crime. And um, there are a couple other rules Basically, a lot of the women said that those rules didn't always apply. That when they needed people on crews, they would just recruit and then put them through the program, and they would then be transferred to the camps. So some those were the rules according to CDCR. They weren't always applied, according to the women that I interviewed. The, what they did do though is they went through a three-week training program, which was two weeks of you know really intense physical training. So like burpees and running with like heavy packs that would replicate what you're carrying when you're on the fire line. And, uh, you know, hiking up mountains in Chino um, in full gear, it would be like thousands of sit-ups, lifting weights, and they would be makeshift weights because weights aren't allowed. And so it'd be like water bottles filled with sand. And they had to do this training every morning for two weeks and then a week of training where you're in the classroom and you're watching videos, but there's never live fire training. It's not nearly as long as free world crews train for. Um, it's, uh, but they, you know, after this three weeks, they're transferred to camps and they can be sent out on a fire almost that first night.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, you had mentioned in your earlier answer about the the news story that you saw about Shauna that kind of started this whole thing off. And in the book you reproduce that news story and one of the things that was really striking to me was that the the story spent like more time like reassuring the public, I guess, that there were all these standards about like these aren't people that have been convicted of a violent crime and stuff. Uh, you know, almost as much about that as there was about Shauna specifically and her life and what happened to her. Like they're worried that the, the public is gonna be like, Oh my gosh, you're sending criminals out on the fire lines. They're gonna, you know, do something terrible out there.
2: Yeah, and I think I mean that's so perceptive and clear is that, um, you know, CDCR. So I think that people in California who are outside of the prison system and don't know the fire camps exist, they see a crew and they think it's a fire crew. Like it, it looks pretty much if unless you know, you know, they're dressed in all orange rather than in. Like a federal fire crew is in yellow on top and khaki green on the bottom. A municipal crew is like on an engine and dressed really differently than both. But unless you really know the difference, they look like a fire crew. And so there, it's. I think the CDCR doesn't necessarily want people to know that prisoners are actually saving communities and building roads that are keeping people safe and that they're being paid very little to do it. And that's their primary concern, maybe. Um, I mean, I can't speak for them, but sometimes it did feel that way. You're right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so what about the the motivations for these women to take up this, uh, you know, this job, because it, it's a very demanding and challenging job you know with all of the the training and everything they have to do but it also seems like something that they really want to do and that people uh that you talk about in the book are really trying really hard to stay in the fire camp not to get sent back to the the regular uh prison along the way so what's the what's the motivation what's the um you know the draw of it and i mean it sounds like it's certainly not the money because they're paid uh practically nothing uh
2: Well, actually, so interestingly, um, the fire camps are one of the highest, if not the highest paid um, job within the prison industries in California. So one part is the money, because you can actually um, end up saving a lot of money to walk out with, because you're paid so little by comparison when you're doing jobs in state prisons, like sometimes it's three cents an hour, 10 cents an hour. To sew things, to do you know various different really mundane tasks. Um, this is obviously different. You're risking your life, but you're getting, you know. And it sounds so horrifyingly low from the outside world looking in, but within prison industries, it is a high sum. It's you know when I started reporting, it was two dollars and fifty six cents a day and a dollar an hour on the fire line it's now been raised to $5 a day in camp and a dollar an hour on the fire line. Um, so the money is a little bit of a draw. And the other draws are, it's not so much to want to be a firefighter or to want to be doing the work. Although I think for some people that's true. I think it's to escape what is otherwise a deeply inhumane situation, which is occurring in state prisons. I think that there are situations where you're under, you know, watch from people, from correctional officers who can be predatory. There's violence almost every day. There's malnutrition. There's ill health. There's, you know, a disregard basically for human life in a way that is like leaving that situation and being able to live every day with a task and a purpose and engaging in the natural world, which is what camps are, I think that that's really appealing for a lot of people. And I think that it's really hard work and it's it's life-threatening work, but state prisons and county jails, the situation in them, it's so bad that that alternative seems like a better option sometimes. That's one aspect. The other is you can be in a place with no fences and no barbed wire, no cells, you're in a barracks, you're in a camp which is in a natural environment in the hills, and you're sent out into, you know, national parks and forests. And it's a totally different setting than what a state prison is. You know, one woman that I talked with recently described seeing her daughter in prison and that the closest they could come to contact when there was a visit was that her daughter's hand touched her hand like with the plexiglass wall between them. And that was the closest contact they could make. And in camp, you know, they could hug each other, they could actually see each other, and our daughter could see her in this environment, which wasn't terrifying.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really kind of important point that, you know, there's such, as you say, inhumane conditions that people face in so many of our correctional institutions but then even in ones that are being run in a you know quote unquote humane way right where they're not like feeding people moldy food or something like that that does happen um you know even if it's being sort of run well you still are cut off from any contact with the natural world uh and that itself is like a a difficult thing and so You know, working on a fire crew, you're in very close contact with the natural world. Um, Yeah,
2: and I think a lot of the women that I interviewed um, hadn't had that much contact with the natural world, and it was surprising to them how much they responded to it and to the hikes and to engaging in things that they actually didn't think they wanted to do or felt good. But then... So many of them actually talked to me about how they'd go back to Malibu sometimes and do the hikes that they had to do as a crew, and they uh, they all said, you know, ugh, I'm in horrible shape now, but and it was really hard, but I really wanted to, you know, get to the top of Backbone Trail or one of the trails, and it, it was something that they really connected with. And there's actually research that. That points to that that the natural world can be extremely rehabilitative, and I think most people can attest to that.
1: Yeah, and so kind of following on from that, this is a thing that it's not just that getting to work on the fire crew is preferable to sitting in jail or even doing the other uh, jobs that might be available to inmates, like you know at the time while you're incarcerated. But this also is kind of a, a life changing experience for people that they're they're kind of different when they get out if they've spent this time working on the fire line
2: yeah I mean I think that all people who have to go through the um, the system are different when they get out I think for for better maybe if you're in the fire camps a little bit there might be some positives to it. But largely for worse, I think that going to prison and mass incarceration is a trauma, and I think that people who are experiencing reentry, it's one of the hardest hurdles to to sort of get over, and you can't get over it. It's it's something that is then sort of embedded in your psyche, I think, forever once you've had to experience it. Um, but I do think that. You know, that was one of the biggest surprises, I think, in reporting the book was a lot of the women really did respond to the training and to being pushed and to being out there and in the, you know, on the line and working together when they were working on a fire.
1: So when you're describing these stories of these women in the fire camps and out on the fire line, uh, fighting the fire, there's sometimes this kind of, I'm calling it like a two-sidedness to it because, you know, you'll be talking about this and they're working as firefighters and they're doing firefighter stuff, you know, they're cutting trees and clearing uh, line and hiking through the, you know, really rugged terrain sometimes and worrying about when the fire is going to reach a certain point, you know. Things that we part of the story of any firefighters, but then just something comes along and, like, you know, pulls you up short. It's like, yeah, these are also still people who are incarcerated and they're serving a prison sentence and they're also being treated as prisoners in addition to being uh, firefighters. So, can you talk a little bit about how the experience of being an inmate firefighter is different from being a non inmate uh, firefighter?
2: Well, I'd start by just saying that being a the free world firefighter is one of the hardest jobs right now out there. You know, you're like subjecting yourself to psychological and physical, which I kind of believe are the same things, um, conditions that are so intense and potentially damaging and just you're separated from your family. It's just a hard job and it feels unending right now, I think, and especially in California, um, although there seems to be fires everywhere. Um, but I think that when you're doing that job and you're also incarcerated, it means that you're going out there doing the hardest job and subjecting your body and mind to this, these taxing and incredibly difficult challenges. And then you have to go Back to camp, and you potentially, you know, your behavior could add time to your sentence. You have you have to sort of respond to all of the um, demands of a correctional officer, regardless of whether they seem to account for the idea that you've been fighting fires for two weeks straight. Um, there's no sort of accommodation for exhaustion, mental or physical, and I think that it's it's incredibly hard to be a firefighter. It's pretty much impossible to be a firefighter and a prisoner, and sort of maintain a certain amount of uh, like dignity in what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I think one of the most kind of emotionally impactful bits of the the book as i was reading it was when you were talking about uh after shauna died and the way that that was dealt with in the camp that she had been part of and it was like you know the folks in charge were kind of like all right we're just gonna keep doing everything we're not gonna give people space to grieve we're not gonna you know let you talk about it because you know we just have to we're going to keep going and and fight fires and uh you know not really acknowledge the human dimension that she had been part of this like community here and that it's really traumatic when somebody that you're close with dies
2: i mean not just that like the women on her crew saw her die like it, mm-hmm. it's such a um i i mean i know from the women that I've spoken extensively with, that it's still something that's a haunting and it doesn't go away. It's a trauma to experience that and see that. And I think that, you know, specifically, uh, one of the women feels like it was her fault. And, um, yeah, there there wasn't any... But that, that's also just sort of the nature of the way incarceration works, is there is an accommodation to treat people humanely. So even before Shauna had passed away, you know, her dad had died and she couldn't grieve appropriately and she couldn't. You know, when you think about a parent dying and you're imprisoned and you have three months left to do and you can't. Go and be with your family. You can't go to the funeral. You can't he she couldn't visit him, even though she knew that he had cancer. She couldn't do any of the things that somebody on the outside would have been able to do with a parent who was dying and then died. And there, you know, that's what that's the point of prison is to not let people behave as people, and it's a tragedy. Mm-hmm.
1: So I want to zoom out now a little bit from the like specific experiences of the woman that you talk to because I think, Folks sometimes don't realize just how important inmate crews have become to the firefighting system nationwide, but especially in California. So, could you talk a bit about how inmate firefighters fit into this larger picture of the the fire system and how we currently go about trying to protect lives and property from uh, these huge fires that have been happening?
2: So, prior, so that things changed slightly during the pandemic. Um, But prior to the pandemic, about 30 to 40 percent of on-the-ground wildland firefighting crews were inmates, and that could be up to 4,000 people. And that was about, there were only three camps that were all female among the 44 camps total. So there were about 250 to 300 women who were on the lines any given season. When the pandemic happened, it changed because CDCR did such a bad job um, with COVID and there were so many deaths and such a spread of infection that they stopped doing transfers. They stopped having people populate crews um, because they were afraid of crews going out into communities and then spreading COVID. And so everything shut down and really the whole carceral system shut down. Um, and I think, even still, there's very limited in person uh, visiting. And so, and for a long time, people in state prisons were on 23 hour lockdown, which is pretty inhumane in and of itself. Um, but they are again populating camps. Um, so there's, I think, about 2,000 uh, trained incarcerated people uh now now and I think about twelve hundred of them are fireline ready and they're you know on every single fire that is currently happening that started happening very severely in June of this year. It's been a wild and awful and devastating season as it was last season and as it will be in the, you know, unforeseeable in the future. Um, I think that, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom shut down eight camps last year, and that was because of criminal justice reform, because so many of the prisoners who can qualify to be firefighters have to have low-level crimes, and a lot of those that qualified were released. Um, so he, they couldn't populate the camps and he shut down eight of them. One of them was a female camp and the other seven were male camps. Um, I don't know if that points to a shift in the thinking of how, uh, they're going to use this firefighting force. Um, I don't know. I, I've sent Many, many questions to the Secretary of the Interior, to Gavin Newsom's office. Um, I don't know the way the wind is blowing in terms of the future of inmate firefighting crews. Um, I think that a lot more attention is being paid to it. And I think now that the recall is over, it's possible that there might be some reform, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, it- really does seem to create some like weird perverse incentives when the system depends so heavily on these inmate crews as part of the you know the labor force for fighting these fires. Um, And I made note of a a quote that you give from uh, something that was said by the Attorney General's office uh, a little while back, actually, while Kamala Harris was in charge, where they said that decreasing the inmate population, you know, if you're doing these kinds of Criminal justice reforms that might, uh, you know, keep some of these people with less violent crimes out of the system. But if you do that, it would quote severely impact fire camp participation, a dangerous outcome while California is in the middle of a difficult fire season and severe drought. And it's just kind of like a mind-blowing <laughs> quote that, like, the need for firefighters. Uh, that you can get way cheaper than free world firefighters because you're only paying them a dollar an hour uh, is driving decisions about criminal justice reform. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was in 2017 uh, before, you know, the most devastating in terms of human loss fire A campfire happened before the Wolseley Fire. You know, fire seasons are only getting worse. California only is going to need more firefighters and will continue to rely on this population. Um, And this is also, let's keep in mind, a state with a budget surplus. So it's not like they can't pay them. They just haven't
1: yeah I didn't realize California had a, a budget surplus,
2: yeah, an enormous one they um are doing i think seven hundred dollar a person rebates um oh, for wow. everybody in California who's a okay. taxpayer um, i'm
1: I'm so used to hearing about state budgets being like you know in crisis from not having enough money
2: yeah uh, they did they actually i think because because very, very wealthy people were. Okay, during COVID, and their stocks rose in the most perverse way. Um, California has a lot of very, very wealthy people, and that meant that there was more, more, more tax, and they ended up, I think, with something close to like a three billion dollar budget surplus. I mean, he there's a lot of money going to good places, but I haven't seen any earmarked for you know, incarcerated firefighters or figuring out ways to shift what they're doing, you know, into a more civilian role, which I personally think it should be. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So I want to now ask about your research process. And you've touched on this a a little bit, but I kind of want to dig into it a little more because you... Uh, discuss a lot of really intimate details of the lives of the women that you're talking about. You know, a lot of very personal stuff. And you, you have a lot of very... Uh, your detailed descriptions of what some of these very traumatic things that have happened to them, uh, were like. So I'm interested in your, your process of how you got in touch with these people, how you built that trust with them, that they would share some of these stories and things about their, their backgrounds and their, you know, experiences and then also about how you went about trying to tell their stories in a responsible way because you're going to take all this stuff that people have told you and you know you're putting it in a book that's anybody in the world can buy and read about it so what was kind of your process for uh for the the research portion of this book
2: so i think i'm always i'm much more interested in telling people's stories. Um, I mean, I have general ideas of topics I wanna cover and issues that are deeply important to me, but I'm always much more interested in the people who are sort of affected by those issues or somehow related to those topics. And so I generally start with talking to as many people as possible. And when I began writing the article, I could, I went to the camps themselves and I went to the training, the forestry training center at the um, CIW, which is the women's state prison in Chino. And I was able to interview, you know, I think hundreds probably of women who were either going through the training, graduating from the training or at one of the three camps at the time. And I, you know, Kind of just wanted to talk to each of them and whoever was willing to talk to me. I didn't want to put pressure on anybody who didn't feel comfortable talking to me because I think that I'm always, you know, very grateful to anyone who is willing to talk to me and also, you know, just frankly surprised because I think it's a real leap of faith and I really, really take that seriously. And so I generally start there and just begin talking about who they are and their lives and, you know, what they're interested in and what they like and general points of interest. And then over time, you know, I met all of these women in camp. And then when I decided to do the book, I started focusing on the women that I profiled and followed within the book and I got in touch with them and then I went out to see them and I would just talk to them every month or so or every other month and we'd you know they just catch up and I would just continue to talk with them throughout the 5 years of reporting until you know there's never a real end point and I don't I always felt like each person could be its their own book and you know, I wanted to be able to have, I, you know, what you mentioned in the beginning, which I really wanted a spectrum of experience because there were so many different women who go through the camps and their response to it was so different. And their what their lives were like afterwards was they were so different. And I wanted to kind of get a sense of not just what their lives were like before and why they ended up in prison, but what their lives were like in prison, why they decided to go to camps, what the camps meant to them, and then what how the camps affected their lives afterwards. So in terms of gaining trust, I don't I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I just keep talking and and they participated and I feel super just eternally grateful for that and I feel very close to them and lucky that they were willing to let me be a part of their lives and that I could be a part of theirs. Um, I don't know if I answered all of your questions. It was a Russian doll of questions.
1: <laughs> no, that's that's okay. Um, <laughs> but to kind of follow up, what about the people in charge, the, the people running the prison and so forth? Did they give you any a hard time about this? Did they try to restrict what you were doing? Were they worried that what you were going to write was going to make them look bad, anything like that?
2: I don't think they worried that what I was going to write was going to make them look bad because I think they CDCR is extremely proud of the fire camps, um, and they certainly were then. I don't know exact. There's a new head warden, and I don't know if she has the same um, regard for them. I haven't had that much experience with her. But... Um, for the most part, you know, the correctional officers that were at the camps, they took me on tours. They sat and had meals with me. We talked about the women and their, what they perceived as how the women responded to the work and the, what they saw with, in terms of behavioral um, stuff. And they were pretty open with me. I made a, a very clear point, though, to not spend too much time in the book. Um, on the perspective of correctional officers because I really wanted this to be a book that was focused on the women's experience and what they saw and how they went through um, life. And, you know, I I used my interviews with the correctional officers to kind of round out some of the details of the the camps. But, you know, I really take all of what is said with a grain of salt um, with that. I wanted this to be a book from that was coming from the women and their experience. <laughs> but also, you know, I, the other part of that is that when I initially did report this story, the one thing that the PR person for CDR CR said was you can't ask anyone about Sean Lynn Jones because it's too soon after her death. And I agreed to that. Um, Cause I just, I wanted to get in the camps and I wanted to see what I could kind of per, like get And when I went over to the fireside at Malibu, the PR person for the the L.A. County Fire Department wasn't there. And so the crews were just kind of standing around and I was standing around. And a couple of the women who were on Shauna's crew walked up to me and they said, are you here writing about Shauna? And I, you know, I said, well, I'm writing about the camps. And then they proceeded to tell me about it. And I, you know, I it was a moment of kind of ethical, well, they're mm-hmm. talking to me about it. I didn't ask them. So I'm mm-hmm. still following the rules, but they clearly wanted their voices heard. And it was so important to me to represent this perspective because they were right there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So now I want to ask you the the hard question uh, about all this which is there's obviously problems with the system as it exists currently so kind of what's the what would be the solution like you know what would be the the ideal system if they put you in charge of redesigning
2: Well my ideal system would be to completely dismantle Mental uh, CDCR because I think that there are so many devastating things happening inside. Um, just as a foundational issue, but in terms of the fire camps, that's probably is their crowning achievement because I think that it's an effective. You know, all of the women that I spoke with really did respond well to a lot of what they got to do, but I think. It has to be separated from this, you know, from CDCR. It basically cannot be an incarcerated uh, prisoner camp, a fire camp. You, ha- you can maybe create a civilian climate corps or California climate corps or, you know, there's there are these sort of models in place where you have minimum wage or higher positions where you're doing this training, or you opt into this training, if the, if your, you know, conviction is low enough, then that you can do it as you're incarcerated, then you should be able to do it as a civilian, you should be able to do it with support, you know, support of both addiction programs and mental health resources and community programs and training and job guarantees, and you should get paid. And you should have, you know, OSHA that should be able to look and see that your work conditions are okay. You know, all of these things that just don't exist in the fire camps. And I think it's possible to retain all of the structure of these, you know, incarcerated fire camps, but just shift it out of the control of CDCR.
1: All right. Well, so... Gavin Newsom, if you're listening, we've got some ideas for you. (laughs) Um, Okay, so to wrap up our conversation here, uh, we always like to end by asking what you're working on next. What are your projects that you're taking up now that this book is out?
2: (laughs) Well, like I mentioned before, I'm getting a puppy tomorrow. So that's going to be the big work. (laughs) Um, I, I... I'm working on a few things. I'm probably going to be a little bit opaque about it. But I um, had published a story in the magazine about homelessness and Venice Beach. Um, And I'm considering expanding that into a book and writing about um, street medicine and kind of the history of Venice as a community and what's happening now in terms of shelter, housing. and. Uh, you know, the unhoused at large, Um, but really focusing on Venice. And uh, that's one possibility. There are a couple of other things, one having to do with uh, mass incarceration in California. And um, another one is a sort of more climate change thing. But um, these are all kind of, um, I've been... uh, resisting work and that's not going to last very long because i can't afford it so all
1: right well those all sound very interesting we'll look forward to seeing what you produce there so thank you so much for coming on the show
2: i appreciate it thank you so much for having me
1: you just heard a conversation with Jamie Lowe, author of Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires, published this year by MCD.